0: Well good morning, I want to welcome everyone here this morning and those on live stream to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. Uh, We want to extend a special welcome to our visitors and if you are a first time visitor please be sure to pick up a welcome package on the table in the narthex. Our senior pastor Jeff Birch and his wife Evie, they are out of town this week and as many of you know Evie's mother has gone home to be with the Lord. And we pray for their family. <clears throat> we want to welcome our youth director, Travis Skillingstad. Did I get that right? <laughs> He'll deliver the message this morning. Uh, those of you who are on the inside aisle, would you please pass the friendship pad located under the seat in front of you? Please make note of the announcements in the bulletin. The ladies' Advent team will be held on Tuesday, December the 6th at 6.30 p.m. Please remember to sign up as soon as possible in the North X. Mark your calendar for the Christmas cantata on December the 18th at 6 p.m. This program, it will include our choir and orchestra. You don't want to miss it. Uh, Seating is on a first-come basis. And it's not too late to turn in your pledge cards for the LOPC 2.0 campaign. (laughs) There's a secure box on the table in front of the missions map for your convenience. And volunteers are needed to decorate the church for Christmas on Saturday, November the 26th at 9.30 (laughs) a.m. The sign-up sheets are in the narthex. For more information about our church, please check your bulletin. Oh, now let us prepare our hearts for worship. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let us pray. Father, we bless your name this day, for you are our God and you have given us so much. The natural wonder of your majesty surrounds us every day. The forests, the fields, the dairy farms, Waterfowl fly and swim Lake Oconee, and wildlife abounds around us, and we feel your presence in our lives. The cold days of winter are filling the local Lake Oconee area. We're thankful for all you have given us. Our homes are warm. We have food to eat. In a world where there is so much devastation, one would have to wonder, why have we been so blessed? Lord, we pray for your healing power for those who are in need and we pray for those who need comfort in Christ's name we pray amen well please stand and let's sing a mighty fortress is our God hymn number 92 need of confession comes today from 1st John 1 verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Now, I'd like to invite you to engage with God in personal confession. Our corporate, our corporate confession of sin, let us pray together. Cleanse me a sinner, for I have done nothing good before thee. Deliver me from the evil one, and may thy will be in me, that I might open my unworthy lips without condemnation and praise. In thy holy name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit now and ever unto ages of ages. Amen. Our assurance of pardon comes from 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous is the appropriation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that I let us stand and sing. Crown Him with Many Crowns. Him, number two ninety-five.
1: Go to our Lord in prayer and as we do that let's recite in unison the prayer that Jesus has taught us saying our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and give us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. is the kingdom, and the power, and glory are forever. Amen. Our Father and gracious God, what a privilege it is to be in your presence and to offer our praise and adoration, and indeed to know you as our Heavenly Father, the one who is the source of our existence and our daily bread. You've called us together on this glorious morning that you have made for us so that we may worship you and offer our praises and indeed give thanks for who you are and what you have done for us. We know that by your grace the ransom has been paid for our redemption and because of that amazing grace our hope lies at the foot of the cross and it is by your grace that our need and desire for Jesus is accomplished. For if not for your grace, we would be a people lost on a path to nowhere. Lord, we realize that in spite of our failings and our weaknesses in your sovereignty, you have called us and you've set us apart to be faithful servants for the purpose of furthering your kingdom in this very broken world. So we give thanks for the stewardship campaign and the faithfulness of this, your church. That we rejoice in the calling of Travis and Ellen to be part of our church family as we work to bring the gospel and love of Jesus to this community. Father, you've given us the gift of life, but for some it is a struggle fraught with pain and suffering. You've never promised us a life free of pain, but in your infinite love and mercy, you have promised us that you would never forsake us, in our time of need. So we rest on that promise, and on behalf of those brothers and sisters who are suffering, whether it be a physical affliction or the grief of a loss of loved ones, we offer our prayers on their behalf. We ask for healing, we ask for comfort and peace, and may we all find comfort in our times of distress, knowing that our hope is in the resurrection and as it was for Jesus, knowing that there is glory beyond the suffering. Your word tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, but we confess that our faith wanes at times as we get caught up in the cultural idols of this world. So forgive us and help us persevere in the day-to-day distractions in our journeys. So Father, as we worship you this morning, we ask that you draw near to us, And as we draw near to you and we hear your word proclaimed, our hope is in knowing that your kingdom will come, your will will be done in this place at this time. And we rejoice knowing that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.
2: Us to be here. Ellen and I and Leah are all very excited to be joining you officially and becoming residents here in Lake Oconee. Uh, we've both just been blown away already by how welcoming and how loved we already feel and it just makes the transition that much easier so we want to thank you for how welcoming and loving you've already been towards our family and we hope to be a blessing in this place. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Mark 5. That's where we'll be this morning. Here now as I read the very inerrant and true word of God. Verses 1 through 20 of Mark chapter 5 says this. They came to the other side of the sea. To the country of the Garasines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to claim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, you are a good, good Father. We ask now that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth will be pleasing to you O lord my rock and my redeemer would you speak to us through your word god and would it leave us changed more and more like your son jesus we pray this in his name amen so i grew up in the midwest more specifically in minnesota i don't know how much you know about minnesota probably that it's really cold colder even than here this morning Right? Or maybe you know that's where Prince is from. (laughs) But I want to let you into a phenomenon that you may not know about. Minnesota gets a decent number of tornadoes. Not as much as Oklahoma or Kansas or somewhere in the tornado alley, but more than we do here in the South. As a kid, it was normal to hear a tornado siren go off outside and, and to know the drill. We would head downstairs to the basement with all of our necessities. For me as a kid, that meant Snacks and a game or a ball to play with. But my mom would always bring a radio or a flashlight, you know, the things we actually needed. And we would wait out the tornado. Now, if you were to stand outside while the siren was going off, you might see something you wouldn't expect. As everyone inside their houses were frantically running around trying to get to the basement, the dad of each house had a different role. Their job was to make sure everyone got to the basement, then go to the fridge, maybe grab a beverage, and then head out to the front porch to see if they could spot the tornado. (laughs) Now, they weren't doing it so they could report on it or for some safety reason. No, they just did it because they wanted to see something that big and awesome. To get a glimpse of something so powerful was worth the risk of standing outside on your front porch in the middle of an actual tornado. Everyone responded differently to this awesome force of power. Some ran and hid, probably smartly, while others were drawn in just to get a glimpse of this force, of this power. As we look at the book of Mark and our passage in Mark 5, we too are confronted with an awesome power, one that people long to get a glimpse of, and when they do, it can cause some unexpected responses, like standing outside during a tornado. The book of Mark is focused on the public ministry of Jesus and focuses a lot on the miracles of Jesus. That's because a central theme of the book of Mark is legitimizing the authority of Jesus in his call to discipleship. Much of Mark is centered on the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man that can do all these miraculous things? And the book crescendos at the crucifixion of Jesus when a Roman centurion of all people proclaims, Surely this was the Son of God. Mark was written to a Gentile audience, so these aren't people that necessarily have an Old Testament background and aren't familiar with Jewish customs. And right before our text in Mark 5, Jesus has just calmed the storm in the boat with the disciples. And if we look at the surrounding chapters, we'll find that we're in the middle of Jesus' miraculous ministry in the region of Galilee. Our text is included in a section of Mark that is showing Jesus' authority over all things, over nature, over spirits, over people, and everything in between. Mark 5, 1 through 20 can be broken down into four distinct parts. The state of the man, the battle for authority, the response of the people, and the response of the man. As we walk through this text and these parts, we'll see that this encounter is all about authority and the response to authority, specifically Jesus' authority. Let's look first at the state of the man in verses 1 through 6. You'll remember that Jesus has just calmed the storm, and our text immediately follows that with Jesus and the disciples getting out of the boat and into a town in the region of Gerasenes. Jesus steps out of the boat and is immediately met by a demon-possessed man. You'll see this word immediately repeated throughout the book of Mark as a way to emphasize the action of Jesus' ministry. This is a fast-paced book, and even now, we move from one miraculous encounter to another. We're told that the condition of this demon-possessed man is quite severe. We're told he lived among the tombs, that he has been cast out of town and is quite literally living among the dead. This is, in part, a picture of what these demons want to do to this man. They want to destroy him. Now, we aren't told anything about why this man in particular is possessed. But we know that Satan and his followers hate God and everything about him. And the mere fact that this man is an image bearer of God is enough for them to want to destroy him. We're told that not even chains can contain him anymore, nobody can help him. He's simply been consigned to his fate to live in the tombs until he's destroyed. Again, the state of this man is severe. He's obviously in pain and distress as he cries out night and day and cuts himself with stones, as it says in verse 5. The picture that we're given of this man is hopeless, helpless, destructive and painful. Maybe you can resonate with feeling like this. Maybe not possessed, but have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt helpless? Have you felt great pain? What do you turn to in those times? As we look at verse 6, we can see the desperation of this man for someone, anyone, to help him. As he sees Jesus from afar, runs to him, and falls at his feet. Later in this passage, the next verse, actually we'll see that the demons in this man knew who Jesus was. But it's likely that this man didn't know who Jesus was at this point. So we can feel his desperation as he sees someone and longs to be helped because nobody has been able to help him up to this point though they've tried. This man is living among the dead, seemingly on the brink of death. He's desperate to be freed and healed and brought back to life. As we move to the confrontation between Jesus and the demons in verses 7 through 13, we can see that the demons have now taken over as the mouthpiece of this man. On first reading of verses 7 and 8, you might think that the demons here are submitting to Jesus. And in part, they are because of who Jesus is. But what's really going on here is the demons are attempting to gain power over Jesus. Remember, this passage is all about authority. And these times, to be able to name someone was to have authority over them. This is like modern day, if you've ever seen two guys having an argument or disagreeing about something, and one guy calls the other one something like buddy or champ. You know at that point, that's not a term of endearment, and he's trying to belittle the other person. When the demons name Jesus, they're attempting to assert power and authority over him. This obviously fails, though, as the demons beg, do not torment me. And Jesus flips their attempt on them by asking, what is your name? Still hoping to intimidate Jesus, they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Legion was a Roman army unit made up of somewhere between two and 6,000 Soldiers. This is further shown in a few verses as the demons enter about 2,000 pigs, but we'll get there in a minute. We can see the longer the demons are confronted by Jesus, the more and more their power and position diminishes as they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country in verse 10. We'll see begging be a theme and something that is repeated throughout this passage. It's becoming more and more clear that. Jesus is the authority here and not these legions. Still bent on destruction as is their nature, the demons again beg that they can instead go into the nearby pigs. Now, this is a somewhat puzzling turn of events. Why do they enter pigs and why do they rush into the sea to be killed? I can hear echoes of Pastor Birch and I agree, that's a lot of bacon that's now going to waste. What's going on here? Well, first, let's look at why pigs. The inclusion of pigs is another insight that this is a Gentile place because pigs were considered unclean by Jewish custom. So pigs would not have been around a Jewish-centric place. So Jesus now symbolically sends these evil, unclean spirits into an unclean animal. But why do these demons enter these pigs and promptly rush to their death? Well, I think this, too, is a picture or an image of the authority of Jesus, both now and in the future. This scene is foreshadowing of Revelation 20.10, which reads, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here, Jesus' final authority is executed. Where these demons are thrown into the sea, one day Jesus will throw Satan and all of evil into the lake of fire, where evil will be defeated forever. This is a glimpse of Jesus' absolute authority. Not only this, but verse 13 states that Jesus gave them permission to go into the pigs, which they ultimately do, and again, cause the death of. Jesus' authority is made plain as he grants permission to these demons. Permission only comes from a place of authority. You all know this to be true because you've probably been given permission by somebody to do something in your life when that person did not have the right to give you permission and it rubbed you the wrong way. For example, if my wife were to say, I'm going to go to the grocery store, and I responded with, sure, you have my permission to go to the grocery store. (laughs) I think you all that are married know how that conversation would go. On the other hand, if I were to either grant or deny my daughter permission to go to a friend's house or to enroll in some extracurricular activity, nobody would have a problem because I have that authority to make that decision as her parent. To grant permission shows authority over someone else. Who has authority over your life? Do you get to decide what your life is? Or does God get to decide what your life is? Here's the reality of Jesus' authority. It's not a matter of whether or not I give Jesus' authority over my life. He has it. Really, it's a matter of whether I'm going to submit to that or not. And we get two different examples of how people respond to the authority of Jesus in the last sections of these texts. As Jesus' authority has been established, let's look at how the townspeople respond in verses 14 through 17. Those at the scene flee and tell the town and everyone they can find about what happened. As you and I probably naturally would, the people come out to see for themselves what had happened. What they found surprised them. Read in verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Contrast what they found with the description that we were given earlier in the first few verses of this text. He's now sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. These people knew this man as the one who lived among the tombs, who cried out and cut himself with stones, who couldn't be bound even by chains. It's possible that some of these people that came to see were the very ones who tried to help this man and couldn't. And they now find Jesus, find him with Jesus acting like a normal human being. What do you expect their response to be? Maybe awe, joy shock perhaps thanks thankfulness well let's read in verse 15 sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid just like we would have seen right before this in mark 4:35 through 41 when jesus calms the storm their response to the power and authority of jesus is fear who is this that has authority over nature and demonic spirits Now, their fear of this power and authority doesn't draw them in to learn more, but does the opposite. They now beg Jesus to leave in verse 17. Now, before we're too harsh on these people, how would we have responded? Their livestock and likely their livelihood have just been destroyed at the word of this man. This man interrupted their lives and changed everything about it. The man is healed. The pigs are dead. The demons seem to have left. What are they to make of this man? How do we respond when God interrupts our lives? In the sake of full disclosure, I want to tell you briefly how God interrupted my life. I love football, and I grew up playing football. I played all my life, and when I was in high school, it became apparent that I was actually pretty good at football. I began to have dreams and aspirations of playing football in college and even professionally, and was told that was a real possibility and something I should work towards. But in my junior year of high school, I had a pretty severe back injury that I had to have surgery on. But I was determined to see this dream through, so I ended up playing college football in South Dakota. While there, I injured my back again and had to have another surgery, and this time doctors told me I was done. I couldn't play football anymore. Everything I had worked for and everything about who I was as a person was gone in an instant. Now, at this point in my life, I wasn't a Christian. I was simply someone who acknowledged that there was a God and claimed Christianity out of cultural or societal norms. Basically, I went to church once in a while and I thought that everyone was a Christian. That's just part of who we are. If you're not a Muslim or Jewish, you're a Christian. Now, I didn't know much of anything about God, but I knew that he was supposed to be in control of everything. He had authority and power. And if he had authority and power and could interrupt my life, the one that I felt he owed me and the one that I had worked for and deserved then I, and, and ruin it, then I wanted nothing to do with him. Probably similar to how these townspeople felt. This man shows up and clearly has some power and authority and the first thing he does is upend our lives. So they respond with, please leave. They didn't have a problem with a demon-possessed man in their midst, but they did mind having Jesus around. They were more afraid of what Jesus might do than what the demon-possessed man had been doing. Might that be true of us? Are we more concerned with following Jesus, whatever the cost may be, or will we abandon him for the sake of having things our way, the way we want them? In verses 18 to 20, we see that the now healed man responds differently. Jesus honors the begging of the people and is leaving to get back into the boat. But now the man he healed begs him to go with him, that he might be with him. We get our final begging in this passage, this time by a man who begs Jesus not to send them away or for Jesus himself to go away, but that he might be with him. Now... It is the response of Jesus that might surprise you. Verse 19 says that he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is again presented with a request in which he has to give permission to. And this time, he does not permit it. Upon first reading, this might seem backwards. Jesus has been begged by demons to let them go into pigs, and he grants them permission. He's been begged by the townspeople to leave, and he does. And now this man seems to have the right response to Jesus and his authority and begs him to be with him. And now Jesus says, no. How are we to make sense of this? You might be thinking to yourself, that's not fair, or that doesn't seem right. But here's something important about authority that we need to keep in mind. It doesn't require explanation. This can be hard for me to grasp and live with, but if God has absolute authority over me, which he does, he can tell me anything, command me anything, deny me anything, and it requires no explanation on his part. The, the dictionary defines authority as the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And Jesus has ultimate authority now, that alone is enough to make us obey whatever Jesus says, but we also know that Jesus is for us. Even in his command in verse 19, he tells the man to tell his friends and everyone else how the Lord has had mercy on him. We also have texts like Romans eight twenty eight, which reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In verses 31 and 32, just after that, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus not only has authority over us, but he's also for our good. We might not always understand why things happen the way they do, but they will always work for our good and his glory. And verse 20 shows us that. The man responds in obedience and leaves, began proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. And what does this verse tell us the result is? Everyone marveled. I don't know about you, but I struggle with control. I want to know why things are happening, and I want to know where my life is going. But Paul tells us the Christian walk is by faith, not by sight. What we are called to do is trust the one who has authority and obey and know that it is for our good. And that was true for this man. It was actually better that this man not go with Jesus, but stay and be a witness to the mercy and greatness of God. Jesus saying no to this man's request was actually a blessing in his life, even though he might have been asking for a good thing. I think this is a beautiful word to us as we embark on LOPC 2.0 together, as we seek to be a blessing to the community around us and grow our church family. Perhaps you feel nervous or ill-equipped, but look closely at what Jesus calls this man to do. He doesn't tell him he needs to be the world's greatest apologist, the most renowned evangelist. He simply says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. I've only got to see this from afar and and hear this from afar, but part of what drew Ellen and I here was LOPC 2.0 and the vision of the past and the future together. So what is LOPC 2.0 all about? Looking at the mercy God has had on us in this church, in the past and present, and simply telling others about that mercy. This man may not know much, but he knows this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Let's go forth and proclaim the mercies of God to this community so that they too may marvel at our Savior. Looking back, I'm so thankful that God interrupted my life the way he did. Initially, I was angry at God. I blamed him at taking away the life that I thought that I had worked for and deserved but he used that to ultimately bring me to himself. And I finally heard the gospel clearly for the first time, and it was nothing but good news. I had no idea the severity of my sin and no idea the lengths God would go to bring me back into his arms. Here's the beauty and amazing thing about the gospel and this God who has all authority. The solution to our problem, or rather the severity of the solution is directly proportionate to the severity of our problem. So a few years ago, I went hiking with some friends, and while we were out hiking, one of the guys stepped wrong and twisted his ankle pretty badly. We were something like a mile and a half into the hike and had gained a decent amount of elevation, and now this guy couldn't put any weight on his ankle. He couldn't walk. So a couple of us took him over our shoulders, and we hopped all the way back to our cars, deeming that to be the best solution or response. Our response to his injury, or for any injury for that matter, is directly proportionate to the severity of the problem. So, if I got hurt on our hike, and the solution is, I need a band-aid, what does that tell you about the severity of my injury? It's not that bad. On the other hand, if I got hurt on our hike, and the solution is, I need to be airlifted out of here, what does that tell you about the severity of that injury? It's life or death. So, if the solution to our sin is that this all sovereign, all authority having God had to come and die on our behalf, what does that say about our situation? Is there any more drastic solution? We must remember that while God has complete and utter authority over everything, he is completely and utterly for us. So much so that he himself would give himself on the cross. So that we might be with him for eternity. This passage is all about the authority of Jesus and the response to that authority. Jesus has authority over nature, over demons, over people, over planets, over molecules, over everything, everywhere. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. The demons responded to Jesus' authority by trying to assert authority over him and then fleeing when that failed. The townspeople responded by trying to get Jesus as far away as possible. And the man responded by being obedient, even when his request was denied. How do we respond to the authority of God? Do we buck up against it and say, no, I have authority over my own life? Do we try to avoid God? Do we say that, well, be obedient as long as things are going well and I get things the way that I want them? Or do we humbly submit to the sovereign king of the universe? I'll close with saying this one more time. It's not a matter of whether or not Jesus has authority over my life. He has it. Really, it's a matter of whether or not I submit to that authority. So let's go forth and submit in humble obedience, knowing that God does have authority over us, but He's also for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Got a picture of your absolute authority as you rise from the dead and defeat sin and death forever, but also the perfect picture of how you are for us, that you would be willing to go to that cross on our behalf. And so I pray, Lord, as we leave this place, would we leave here wanting to be obedient, not to gain your favor, but simply out of a response to your love for us. So, Father, make us more and more into the image of your Son, who was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, and would that cause us to want to say, like the man, we want to be with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now and sing with us hymn 115, All Creatures of Our God and King."
0: received the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.